Well, good morning, Arbor. It's great to see you. Uh, start off like this. Uh, 1986, I was 10 years old. And uh, 10 years old, that, around that time, there was this saying to be said. Maybe it was a commercial. Anybody remember that? Uh, Got to be like Mike or you want to be like Mike? Remember that? Got to be like Michael Jordan. Well, I didn't want to be like Mike, but there was an individual in 1986 when I was 10 years old that I wanted to be like. He was my hero. He was my idol. He was the one that I wanted to emulate and to, uh, to copy. And that was my dad. I don't know when you're a kid, if you had a dad that was that, that person to you, that you wanted to talk like him, you wanted to dress like him, you wanted to, I wanted to be um, as wise as he was, I wanted to work as hard as he did, I wanted to fish like he fished, um, I wanted to be as strong as he was. And we had a 19, actually I don't know what year it was, but it was an old like Chevy van. And uh, in this Chevy van, it was blue. We would take it on vacations. And the problem with the Chevy van is that you could never shut the door, the sliding door. It didn't have those ones where you push the button and they so elegantly come in and there you go. It's beautiful. I love that now. But this was one of those ones where you had to reef it to get it to go. Like you had to really go. And I wasn't strong enough. But I would notice that my dad, he'd come around after I tried to close it, and he would close it. And then he, he just was so strong. So I wanted to be like my dad. So one day, when I went to close the van door, when it was time to close it, I knew I'm going to do it. I'm going to be as strong as my dad. And so I levered down. I put my hand up here. I went like that. And I slammed the door. And I, you guys, I'm not kidding. I closed it. I closed it. <laughs> I know I closed it because when I walked away, I was unable to walk away. And at 10 years old, I slammed my, my thumb inside of the door. Since 10 years old, this is what my thumb looks like currently. It's been like this ever since. Yeah, I heard someone say gross. That's not cool. That's not cool. <laughs> But here's the thing. It is, it is a little gross. I was actually, growing up, I was embarrassed when I was dating to hold someone's hand. That was always like a weird thing for me, right? I'd kiss them, no problem, but hold their hand, it was awkward. <laughs> and so what's nuts is I got this deformed thumb, and when I started to date my wife, I'm not joking about this, I held her hand for the first time. It was a big moment, and I'm reaching over, and I realize there's a bump on the knuckle of her thumb. And I thought, oh my gosh, she's deformed as well. <laughs> This is meant to be. And so I married her right on the spot. There you are. But I wanted to be like my dad. I did. I wanted to be like my dad. And, and, and I still love my dad and I respect my dad. But these days, I want to be like another man. I really do. I want to mimic. I want to copy. I want to emulate the actions and the passions and, you know, and the practices of Jesus. I want to I mimic him. I want to be like him. The apostle Paul wrote this. He said, in your lives, you should. So he's given us instructions here. He said, you should think and act. So basically, you should live like Christ Jesus. That was Paul. John probably said it best, the beloved disciple, when he wrote, whoever says he abides in him, so whoever says he remains in him, or whoever confesses to be a Christian, ought to live just like Jesus lived. We are to be like Christ, Christ-like. We are to be and live just like Jesus did. Now, I will admit, and I'll be the first one to admit this, there's a gap between the standard Jesus set and where I live here today. That, it's a huge gap. You know, I, I wish I had the response like Jesus would respond to people. I wish I had the love like Jesus loved 
I'm working on it. I'm trying to get there. And I imagine that you're in the same boat too. And so that's why we're doing this series. Is our idea is, is if we want to be like Christ, we should study Christ. So let's investigate Christ in hopes to uh, imitate Christ, to emulate Christ. Um, Paul said this. He said, be imitators of God, Ephesians 5.1, that we are to be in, you know, um, imitators of him. And so today what we're going to do when it comes to the passage today, what I'd like to do is talk about the crazy, and I will use the word intimate, example that Jesus gave when it came to washing his disciples' feet. And I wanted to spend our entire time looking at that and how Jesus served the ones that he loved. And so I've asked my friend Kinsey, if she would, read John 13, verses 1 through 17. So Kins, if you will, go ahead and take it away. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thanks, kids. That was great. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to walk through that extensive passage, as you heard right there, verse by verse. And so let's start in verse 1. Here's what it says. Kenzie read this. It was just before the Passover festival. And Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. That little phrase, his hour, is extremely important. It is mentioned by John six times in his gospel throughout. You see it the first time in the wedding feast, chapter 2, in Galilee, when, when Jesus' mother comes up to him and says, we're out of wine, and Jesus says, why are you bothering me? Uh, this, my, my hour has not yet come. You see it again in Jerusalem. You see that Jesus is in the temple area. Twice he's approached by the Pharisees, and they say they're actually trying to seize Jesus, but they said that they couldn't, and the reason that they couldn't was because his hour had not yet come. Well, in John 12, the narrative flips, and all of a sudden, his time uh, is here. This is it. This is the moment. It is showtime. It is time for Jesus 
to start his way to the cross to pay the sins of the world on his shoulders. And verse 23 says, Jesus said, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. His time. There are two incredible words that point to this incredible truth that I hope brings you rest and peace for your soul. And that is this. That is that God is always on time. God is always on time. He is never late. In high school, I had a friend named Alan. You probably had a friend like this. He couldn't be on time to save his life if his life depended on it. Right, Alan was always a half an hour late. So as a group of friends in high school, what we would do is we would tell Alan that we needed to be, he needed to be there a half an hour early. We wouldn't tell him the actual start time of the movie. We'd just say, Alan, you need to be here at 4.30, and we knew that the, the movie started at 5. Alan would always show up, big smiles, you know, sorry I'm late. And like, dude, it's okay, it's okay. We, we, we prepared for this, right? God's not like that. God is always on time. He is never, never late. At one point in his ministry, though, he was actually accused of being late, right? Two chapters earlier, Lazarus was sick in Bethany, and Mary and, uh, Mary and Martha, they say, Lord, Lord, if you had been here, you know, you, you could have saved him, you know, but our brother, you know, he's died. In other words, you are late. And in that moment, Jesus looks at his watch, and he's like, so you're saying he died, He's dead, right? Yes, he's been dead for four days. He's like, perfect. Because friends, I didn't come here for a resuscitation. I'm here for a resurrection. His time is perfect. It is perfect. Always, always perfect. Peter, his disciple said, Lord, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise. Jesus knew what time it was, he knew that his hour, his, you know, the hour that he had spent his whole life preparing for, the hour that he had come down to the earth for is here. This is the moment, and God is on time, and he's ready for that moment. Sometimes I don't think that our timing lines up with God's timing. Maybe you think God seems to be late in my life, but that's our timing versus his timing. His timing, when you look at his word and when you look back on your life, oftentimes is perfect because he's always on time. Now back to the Passover. The meal is in progress. Judas is preparing to betray Jesus. And then John tells us this. He says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal took off his outer garments, which is like his robe, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that he had wrapped or that was wrapped around him. Verse 3 gives us tremendous insight when it comes to the character of Christ. It says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. The literal translation there is that Jesus was, had full and absolute authority. Now, you need to think about this. Here's Jesus, God, in, in bodily flesh. All power are at his fingertips, given to him by the Father, and catch this, he knows it. He knows that he has ultimate power, ultimate authority. He could do anything he wants. He could walk on water. He could turn water into wine. He can raise people from the dead. He had unlimited amount of power at his disposal. And what does God do with unlimited amount of power? He lowers himself to serve. 
That's what he does. This might come as a surprise to some of you, but I don't spend a lot of time at the gym. Uh, so, <laughs> I don't know why you're laughing. Um, but my wife spent 10 years at a gym. She was a personal trainer. And, and I asked her, even this week, I asked her, did you, know, did you have like bodybuilders that were there? You know, those guys, big ripped muscles who spend a lot of time on the free weights? And she's like, yeah, we had them there. And then she told me something in addition to that that I thought was amazing. In her gym, it was surrounded with mirrors. You know, I had the window that everyone could look out of, and then the rest of it was like a walls of mirrors. And she said that the guys would come up over and over again, and they would flex in front of the mirrors. And here's the best part. She said the window to their office was a one-way mirror. (laughs) And so these bulky buff dudes would come up, and they're like, you know, they're like, ah, oh, ah. And she's sitting there with her fellow employees just watching them. Now, these guys have worked and crafted and and toned their muscles and they've ate eggs for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, right? They have prepared to do this. To do what with all that power? Ah, That's it, right? Jesus wasn't a bodybuilder as far as we know, but he had that kind of power. In fact, he had more power than a wild ox, more power than a raging river, a hurricane, an avalanche, an atom bomb, the sun itself, and a supernova explosion. All of that rolled into one. In fact, the Bible tells us that he controlled all of those things. And so what does Jesus choose to do with that kind of power? Serve. He chooses to serve. Jesus served others. He chose to wash his disciples' feet. It was his choice. Now, back in the day, in Jesus' day, they wore leather sandals. I looked this morning. I didn't see anybody wearing leather sandals today. It's too cold. But they didn't have Nikes. They didn't have Yeezys. I didn't even know what that was till this week. Their toes were exposed all the time, and they would walk in the Middle East on these roads, and everybody walked. You didn't ride. You walked everywhere that you went on these dirt roads, and dirt and dust combined with sweat would create this delicious compound on your feet that was nasty. And the only cure to that, to this gnarly feet syndrome, was simple, that every place where you were to have a meal, they had a basin full of water and a towel. So if you're going to have a meal, it was the job of the servants of the household to prepare the guests and the the people who own the place, prepare their feet themselves for the meal. Now, if you didn't have a servant in that house, which is probably the case when it came to the disciples and the meal that they're having right now, they would wash one another's feet. This was protocol. This was culture. Jesus washed their feet. He made himself a servant, and served those that were closest to him. Look at the words of Jesus. I love this. Jesus said this. He said, those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank, and the leader should be like what? Say it, guys. What? A servant. Exactly. Jesus goes on, and he asks, who is more important, the one who sits at the table or the one who, what is it? 
serves, all right? Then Jesus does what Jesus loves to do is he answers his own question. And he says, the one who sits at the table, of course, which at the time was common sense. But watch this. Jesus says, but not here. For I am among you as what? As one who serves. Jesus defined himself as a servant. He said the son of man, and when he said that, he's referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve. And friends, he asks us to do the same. He asked me to do the same. He asked you to do the same. Think about this. On that day, judgment day, the most beautiful day of your life, if you love Jesus, you'll be standing in his glory, What are the words that you long to hear from your Savior more than anything else? Well done, good and faithful servant. That's what we want to hear. Friends, when all is said and done, a life well done is the life of a servant. That is the life that we've been asked to live. Now, there's an important fact when it comes to this passage that often gets overlooked, and that's this. If you're to read John's gospel, you would miss this, because you need to read Luke's gospel in harmony with, with, with John's gospel. John does not include this, but prior to the, the, um, the washing of the feet, the disciples were in an argument. They are arguing again, What are they arguing about? It's the same thing that they argue about all throughout Scripture. Who is going to be the greatest? Out of all of us, we know that Jesus will be glorified and sit on his throne, but who's going to be on his right? In fact, at one point in time, a couple brothers had their mother go ask if they could have them sit in the place of honor next to them right next to Jesus. So there they are. They're in this situation where they are arguing about who is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And they're so preoccupied about where they're going to sit that nobody is thinking about serving. Everyone is too worried about being a sensation. And so in complete contrast to that conversation, so important, in complete contrast to that, the topic of argument about who's going to be the greatest, the greatest sensation in history, Jesus, the Christ, becomes a servant and shows the boys what's really important, and that is a life of serving. God didn't save us to be a sensation, friends. He saved us to be a servant. And we can go after that. We can try to be a sensation, but he wants us to be a servant. We are to wash feet. That's what we're supposed to do. Jesus gave us this topsy-turvy example of if you have power, if you're the Messiah, here's what you must do with it. And it's crazy, and it was crazy to them to think of this. It would be like the president of the United States cleaning the toilets of the White House. That's what it'd be like. I know some of you are like, well, that's probably a good thing, but the Queen of England doing the laundry at Buckingham Palace. It'd be like Tiger Woods carrying his golf clubs when he's going on the Masters. Other people do those things, right? Jesus, the sensation, becomes the servant. And I imagine that a hush followed over that conversation that they were having, that all of a sudden they got silent as Jesus grabs the towel and he grabs the basin and he bends down and he starts to wash the feet of these dirty, dusty, smellless, calloused feet of the disciples. 
Now, there's a principle here, I think. And I don't want us to miss it. When you have power and you know it, you're secure. When you have power and you know it, you are secure. You don't have to prove anything to anybody. When you know who you are, you don't have to prove who you are. Jesus is in that position. And I want you to hear this. When you know who you are, when we know who we are, we don't have to jockey for position. We don't have to hold up our resume and show people how great we are. We don't have to verbally promote ourselves. Friends, we don't even have to worry about what other people think about us. When we know who we are, we don't have to prove who we are. Our security, this is huge, our security comes from our identity. Jesus knew exactly who he was and exactly why he was there for that hour. And when we know who we are and we know where we've come from and we sure as heck know where we are going, why do we know this? Because we know what he thinks of us. That's where our security comes from because that's our identity and what Christ thinks about us. And knowing that, Christ says, will you go? Will you serve? Will you wash people's feet just like I did? Verse six, let's keep going. Then Jesus, he came to Simon Peter, and Peter said to him, and I like this exchange, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Question mark. And Jesus answered him, you do not realize now what I am doing, but afterwards you will understand. And I love this because now here's where Peter is Peter. And he jumps in. He says, no. He tells Jesus, no, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you will have no part of me. Now, other translations say that you will have no other part of me. Like that actually means you will no longer be my disciple. So those are strong words. And so you can see why Peter flips this big flipperoo right here. And Peter all of a sudden says, Lord, uh, then Lord, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. To which you're like, Jesus is like, slow down, Pete. Calm down, man. It's all right. Jesus says to him, those who have bathed need only wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him, speaking about Judas. And that was why he said not everyone was clean. Now, like I said, I imagine that when this process began, there was a hush, there was a quiet that came over the disciples. And they're, they're, they're thinking to themselves, he's not really doing what he's doing right now. He's not going to wash our feet, is he? And so he comes up to Peter and he kneels down before him. And Peter often says what everybody else is thinking. And that's what I love about him. And, and so Peter protests. Now, we don't know if Peter's response is an act of humility or if it's disguised pride. But I love the man. And I love his raw, unrefined, knee-jerk responses. And so at first, what Peter does is he gives Jesus a double negative. He says, that will never happen, no, never. And so Jesus, from that, basically says, okay, well, if that's the case, then you can't be my disciple, which is obvious now why he caught Peter's attention. And he immediately swings the pendulum. And he's like, okay, Lord, if that's the case, then I want the very best brown bear car wash there is. I want the $15 worth, man. I want to have the clear coat coating. That's what I want. Give me the whole thing, head to toe. Wash me. Everything, my feet, my hands, my head, everything. And Jesus responds by saying this, and it's a little confusing, but let's walk through it. 
says, those who have bathed, the Greek word for bathed is luo, which means to have a complete washing. So those who have been bathed, luo, need only to wash. Now, this is a different Greek word, wash their feet. That word is nipto, which sounds like it should hurt. But nipto basically means it's to clean a portion or to clean a part of something. And so Jesus is saying, Peter, you've already been luoed right? Which was true. Peter would have taken a bath or bathed himself prior to the Passover meal because that was customary. So we would have bathed himself prior to that. And so Jesus is saying, you are completely clean. The only thing that's not clean is the dirt on your feet when you walk to get in here. And so those need to be nip-toed, Peter. That's what we need to do. And so Jesus is obviously not just talking about Simon Peter's physical hygiene here, he is actually mentioning Judas as being unclean, so there is a deeper spiritual parallel. And so here's the analogy. When we put our faith in Christ, we are saved. That's it. Ephesians 2 says that by grace we have been saved through faith. It is a done deal. We have blessed assurance. Now, we could worry about it, and if we do, it's for no reason. We could get saved the night before, wake up in the morning, and ask the question, are we still saved? We can come to the altar multiple times when we're growing up and say, well, I need to get saved again and again. No, you do not need to. It doesn't work like that. If you are saved, you are saved. You don't get unsaved, but what you do get is soiled. Salvation is all-encompassing, which means this, is that our sins, past, present, and future, are taken care of on a positional level when it comes to our relationship with God. We are in right standing with God. Yet, as we walk around in this world full of sin, we pick up a little dust on our feet through conversations that we have, how we respond to people, how we react in our thought life. And so, we need to have our feet cleaned relationally when it comes to God. Jesus said this. He says, if we confess our sins, and that word confess, this is very important, means to agree with, or catch this, continually acknowledge. On a regular basis, confess our sins. He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Friends, I'm married. I mess up a lot, right? And when I mess up, what I need to do in order to stay in right relationship with my wife is I need to say these crazy words. There's two of them. It goes like this. I struggle with it. It's like, I'm sorry. So, I'm sorry. And I use those words. And I actually say them a lot because I'm sorry a lot. But when I mess up, I don't get unmarried, But I do need to acknowledge before my wife that I screwed up. She knows it. I know it. I just need to say it. That's the way that it goes. It's the same thing here. Bottom line, Jesus is saying to Peter and to all believers, you are luoed. You are already bathed, already saved, born again. You can take it to the bank. And so as you go, you need to be nip-toed, which means you need to be washed. You need to confess on a regular basis. You need to acknowledge that I'm missing the mark. And through the grace of Christ, we can grow more and more like him. 
We can stumble our way to become Christ-like. Verse 12, let's keep going. When he, being Jesus, had finished washing their feet, he put on his outer garments and sat down and said, Do you understand what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example. There it is, friends. An example that you should do as I have done for you, just like Jesus. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. I don't believe what Jesus was doing there was creating and officially inaugurating a foot washing ceremony for all of us to follow on a weekly basis. And the reason I don't think that's the case, because we have things like communion that we're supposed to do on a regular basis. The reason I think that's the case is we don't see that ritual in the early church. We don't see it in the book of Acts. If it was that important, Paul would have highlighted it. So Jesus isn't commanding us to literally go and wash each other's feet. And some of you are like, thank you, Jesus, right? Because we are not going to end today with your foot, your bare foot in the hands of a stranger who is washing it and then wiping it off. Although I thought about it. I really did. I really, really did. I don't know if you've ever been a part of a foot washing ceremony. I'm not saying that they're needed, but they are beautiful. When I was in Mexico, in Mexico and on a missions trip, I just remember that you get your feet dirty there. It's hot, so you are wearing sandals, but your feet are nasty. And so I thought it'd be great. Let's do a foot washing ceremony. So we did it with like 125 high schoolers and junior hires and leaders and whatnot. It was amazing. And I remember washing the leader's feet, and then they would go wash their, 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 their kids' feet and their students' feet at that point in time. And, and it was great until the leaders came back around and found me and said, well, let us wash your feet now. And then I was really uncomfortable, really uncomfortable, because it's an intimate experience. And it, it's super significant. And when you're sitting there and your foot is there, I remember just bawling in tears. And, you know, I didn't even, I barely knew the person who was washing my feet, but I'm having this crazy experience. Like, man, you are serving me in such a beautiful way. Jesus is doing the same thing here with his disciples. And he's not saying we need to do that on a weekly basis. He's giving us an example that he set that we are to follow, not a ceremony, but a lifestyle is what we're looking at here. A lifestyle of serving people. We are to serve people. Rick Warren, one of the greatest pastors of our time, said this. He said, the only way to serve God is by serving people. Think about that. That is so true. The only way we can possibly serve God is by serving, as he said, the least of these, and then we do it unto him. And so the question comes, who are we to serve, right? Who are we to serve? And so let's look at his example. What I find interesting is that Jesus started by serving those who were closest to him those in which that he loved. He started with the ones right there, and then he worked his way outward. Um, verse one, yeah, I skipped over it when I went back over it, but I, because I wanted to say it here, it's huge. Jesus, it says this, it says, having loved his own 
who were in the world, now he's talking about his disciples, he loved them to the end. Other translations say he wanted to show them the full extent of his love. The full extent. The full measure. What was that? How did he do that? By serving. He served those closest to him. And in doing so, I hope you notice this, is that he also washed the feet of Judas. Moments before Judas got up and betrayed him. How nuts is that? Judas would never love him back. Judas, would, Judas betrayed him for money. We have people that we feel like are our enemies in life. And what Scott said last week is we are to love them. Whoever them are, love is loving them. And Scott, he said that last week, that we need to love them. And Jesus gives us the example that we are to love them. By washing Judas's feet. That's nuts. But that's what we're called to do. We should always be ready to serve. We should always be prepared for whoever is in need, whether you like them, whether you don't like them, to serve. About two weeks ago, I was watching the Seahawks game after church on Sunday. I was by myself. My wife was not there. She was out with the kids somewhere. I can't remember where she was. All I know is that I'm sitting there watching the Hawks game, my happy place, and my phone rings. And not often does my phone ring anymore. Normally it's a text, right? But it rings this time, and it's my tenant. So we have a, uh, an apartment on our property that we rent out. And I noticed that it's our tenant, and she never calls. So I pick up the phone and I say hello, and she doesn't even say hello. She just says these words, friends. She's not breathing, is what she said. She's not breathing. And, and immediately my heart drops and think, why are you calling me? You should be calling 911. So she says, can you get over here? I don't ask any questions. I don't hesitate. I, um, I get up. And um, I run to her house. It's about, took me about 15 seconds to get to her door. I come in. She's hysterical, hysterical. She turns me over, and I look, and I realize the she that she's talking about is her cat. So her cat is not breathing. <laughs> so I shut the door, and I went back and watched the game. <laughs> no. I didn't do that. She was really upset. Some people really love their cats, right? Not me, but some people really do. And so I went down. So I looked, and I realized the reason there's something, as I looked at the cat, there's something in its throat, in its mouth. I opened its mouth, and way down there was something silver. And so um, at that point in time, I said, you got to hold the cat. And so I gave her back the cat. And guys, she is shaking, because this is like her best friend. This is her best friend, and she is shaking, so I'm like, fine, I'll do it, right? And so I run down to the garage, and I go get needle nose pliers, and I come back up, and I run back up there, and I felt like, I'm not joking, it felt like deja vu, like I'm pulling a hook out of a fish's mouth. It was crazy. I'm like, I've done this. I am prepared. And so I reach in there, and I grab it, and I hook it out, and I pull out what is three quarters of a top ramen packet that has been used, and the, the cat couldn't breathe. Unfortunately, the cat survived. <laughs> and it was the worst act of service that I've ever done in my life. But we must be prepared, right, at any point in time to serve anyone and everyone, whether you agree with it or not. 
And she was so thankful, and it was so great to see her um, loving her cat in the moment afterwards and how excited she was. Our heart posture has to be that, to help, to serve, to give, to lower ourselves, to bend down so that we can help those who are in need. That needs to be our posture. And by Jesus' example, it has to start with those who are closest to us. So that, for us, in our context, is our families. We've got to serve our families, First and foremost, that means your spouse, your children, your parents. For some of us, those are the people we serve last, but they should be first in our lives. We should offer to do the dishes. We should spend time serving our kids and connecting with them. We need to, some of you spend a lot of time serving your kids, some of you, but some of us, we do not. And serving our families, we need to be there and trying to meet and care for and humbling ourselves like Jesus humbled himself to care for their needs. The next, and that is our church family. Our church family, we as well need to serve here and we need to serve each other. We're not going to wash each other's feet today, but we should serve each other in a practical way. The way that we go about that here is we have broken it down into teams. It may seem superficial, but the way that we do this is we have teams that you can serve on, media team, children's team. We have, uh, you know, parking lot team, the ushers team. We have the follow-up team. There's all these different teams that are on here. There's the care team, the events team. All of these things need us as a family to pitch on in. We need to pitch on in. I loved what Garrett said years ago. He said this when he first started. He said this idea, when you come over the first time, you are a guest. And I've shared this before, but I love it. You come over, you're a guest. We'll serve you. Don't worry about it. Second time you come over, okay, we will, we will serve you, but we expect you to grab your own drink out of the fridge. Third time you come over, you are family, and we expect you to do the dishes <laughs> at that point in time. So jump on in. In fact, that is exactly what happened at our house on Thanksgiving. We had our family members jumped in as we hosted, and I was so thrilled to come back and see that the dishes are done, you know, and we didn't have to do a thing. That blessed my heart, and as a church, we need help in this. Now, some of you have been serving in this capacity from the very beginning, from day one, two and a half years, you have been serving, and for that, I want to say thank you, thank you, thank you, right? Paul says in Galatians that we should not get, be weary in doing good, and we should not be weary in doing good. But I also realize for those of you who are serving in that capacity, you are tired. And so I'm speaking to those who have not jumped in and served at this point in time. I'm asking, help us. Help them. Give them a break. We need all of us. Many hands make light work. And so if you will, I ask that you would jump onto that, not just for you or for me, for the church, but for you as well. And I'll get to that here in the end and how it benefits us. Lastly, we have to serve not just family, not just our church family, but we need to be serving our community as well. Out in the area in which we live, our neighbors, right, those we connect with at work. Um, we have a guy here named Tom, Tom Lenart, who, uh, who is serving and has been serving almost since the very beginning on the parking lot crew, and he does that faithfully. And you think, well, he's probably got a lot of time. Friends, he is a eye surgeon, a doctor in Redmond. He has no time. And what this man can accomplish in, in his days just is amazing to me. Not only is he involved in his, here helping in this side, but he's out in the community. Uh, he serves and coaches on the Woodenville football team, 
which is a crazy commitment to do. Um, he's doing the parking lot ministry here. He actually travels. He came back for his third trip from Africa where he does prison ministry all the way over in that community. And he doesn't want to do something around the world that he's not doing here. And so he serves in the prison ministry here um, in this local area. It's amazing, Prisoners for Christ. The man is killed. <laughs> Mike, you're hilarious. <laughs> Knew it. There's Mike who oversees Prisoners for Christ. He's, he, Christ, he's, he's a part of that. I love that. Um, but practically speaking, we got to be servants. So what does that look like? That means that we engage in random acts of kindness. Whenever we see it, let's just do it. Drop off flowers at someone's house that you, that you know needs them. Call someone um, and just check in on them. See how they're doing, right? Uh, share words of love and appreciation. Make amends for someone that you think you may or may not have heard, whether or not it's your fault or not. Lend a listening ear to someone who's going through a tough time. Stand up for someone that cannot stand up on their own. Support someone despite if you agree with their choices or not. Love them outlandishly. This is how we're called to serve. I will conclude with this verse. It's the last verse in that passage, and I think it's amazing. It says this, now that you know these things, what things are we talking about? The whole verse we just talked about, washing feet, serving, serving, serving. Now that you know these things about serving, you will be blessed. If you do them, blessed. This is the best part. Serving is a blessing. The reason I'm not embarrassed to stand up here and to tell you please serve on these teams is because I know it'll benefit you more than anybody else. That's why I have no hesitation. Now, if I were to ask you to come over and help me at my house, I'm a little shy about that. But I am not shy to say pick up a, a tool and let's work here at the church together because I know it will bless you. It will bless you. There's some crazy mystery when it comes to serving that when you serve other people and you help meet their needs, somehow, magically, mysteriously, it helps meet your need as well. Anybody experience that? It's crazy. It is better to give than to receive. Do you know who said that? It was Jesus. And he designed us from scratch. And he knows that inside of us to our core, this is what we're wired to do. Friends, this is how I'm wired. I love to serve. That's my love language. Acts of service. My wife hates it. I love it. I love, love to be able to help people in a practical way. And when people help me in a practical way, it speaks life to me. And I find that when I serve, I grow. I grow closer to him in the process because I'm doing what he has modeled for us. I also find that I connect with people when I serve. That is a great part. You know, if you're ever wondering, why am I not connecting here at this church? I would suggest try serving because it's a great way to connect with people. But in the crazy, weird, roundabout way, when we serve, it meets our needs as well. It's what we were made to do. Bottom line, let us serve like Christ. Let us serve like Jesus. And in the process of changing lives, our lives will be changed as well. And friends, I mean it when I say this. I want that life change for you. I truly do. If we're going to become more like Christ, we not only need to walk like him, we not only need to love like him, we also need to serve like him. We need to, we need to bend down and wash the feet of those we like 
and those we don't like. Those who are easy and those who are difficult. We have been called and commissioned and given an example on how to serve. Let's pray.